0: A new survey from one of the nation's largest healthcare systems, Dignity Health, reveals more than 75% of Americans believe individual mindfulness can benefit their community. 96% know someone in their lives who would benefit from being more mindful or more present. Taking just two minutes a day to be more present in your daily life not only benefits you, but also those around you. So set aside two minutes every day to be mindful and reflect on relationships and the purpose behind your work and daily activities. Share how you're making this a daily habit on social media with the hashtag Take Two Minutes. That's hashtag take the number two M-I-N-S. Visit dignityhealth.org slash take two minutes for more mindfulness tips. the welcome to the you are not so smart podcast episode 105 If you are a long-time listener of the show and you wait for new episodes week to week, you know this episode is a bit delayed, and that's because I was crunching hard to finish my new book, and I am happy to say it is finished. Yes, there is no official title yet, but it's about the science behind how people do and do not change their minds, both as individuals and in groups. And if you heard the three episodes about the backfire effect, those are a sample of the sort of material in the book. And that section actually is just a third of a chapter out of 11 chapters, all about the psychology and neuroscience of mind change. And I'll have more details as I go through the back and forth with my editor and all the rest that leads up to putting a book out into the world. But in this episode... It's going to be a little bit different because of all that. What you're about to hear is an interview that I released to my Patreon patrons only. You can find Patreon by the way, Patreon.com. Slash you are not so smart. I released this about a year ago, and at the time, I thought the quality of the audio was just too poor to put out to everyone. But many patrons told me that they thought the audio was, was bearable. It was fine. So now, a year later, after this crunch, I'm releasing it here as well. And uh, by the way, patrons, now that the book is done, I'll be sending out a host of new content for you. Just look for an email soon about all that. So like I said, this interview that you're about to hear, we had a really bad connection and we tried everything to fix it and we just couldn't so I sent it to two different audio engineers after it was recorded and they did what they could, but the quality just is not great. So please forgive that. And I think you will because it's so interesting that it's worth pushing through. The guest is Tali Sherat. She is a psychologist and neuroscientist at the Effective Brain Laboratory at the University College of London, and she studies perception and cognition. But she also wrote this book called The Optimism Bias which is very popular. She did a great TED talk about it. And it's about her research into how we, how we put on rose-colored glasses in a lot of situations that I think you would be surprised to learn we do. And here she is talking about that book and other topics. So uh, in your book and in your lectures, you, you suggest that our faith in warning labels is flawed. Why is that?
1: Hmm. Um, I don't think that our faith in warning labels is flawed. It's simply that we don't believe that those warnings are um, related to us. So I think we believe when you know we, we're looking at a cigarette packet and it says that smoking kills, uh, we do believe that smoking kills. But because of our optimism bias and our superiority illusion, we tend to think that it's going to kill the other guy and we will be okay there's something about us that is special. We have better genes, you know, we go to the gym and we kind of rationalize these warnings away.
0: Right. And so, uh, and you also say, well, it it sort of wrapped up in that is that when, when we, when we take the approach of inducing fear as a way to alter people's behavior, even our own behavior, it's not really, um, all that effective. Why, Why is that?
1: Um, well, when, when we're afraid, there are um, different behaviors and kind of processes that go on in our brain that are triggered immediately. It's kind of a reaction, like an instinct. So when we're afraid, we tend to want to protect ourselves. Um, and, you know, one way to protect ourselves is to take the action to avoid harm. And if something that is fearful is right in front of us, like, you know, a bear um, or, you know, a, bo- a boss shouting at us, then we might take immediate action. But when warnings are about something in the future, when someone's in, in trying to induce fear about things that may or may not happen in the future... Then there are all these psychological processes that start coming up, um, what some people call the psychological immune system. So what we tend to do is we tend to rationalize these um, warnings away in order to reduce our fear. So we might say, well... We'll come up with reasons why these warnings are not related to us, or we might just put our head in the ground and ignore it altogether, or distance ourselves for whatever it is that is inducing the fear so if someone if let's say you go to the doctor and your doctor says you know if you don't stop smoking and you don't stop drinking and you know you don't stop going to the gym and eat well I'm afraid that your blood pressure will go up and you'll have all these different health problems in the future so yes you can start going to the gym but you can also say "Ah, I don't think that's related to me I'm going to be okay and then just don't think about it and don't go to that doctor again. So that's kind of rationalization, putting our head in the ground and distancing ourselves from what is threatening.
0: So that sounds on the surface as if it might be um, bad, as if it might be a, um, uh, it might be a poor strategy for dealing with the problems in life, but I feel like you don't agree with that, right?
1: Well, I think, specific case is actually problematic so ignoring warnings can actually be problematic but um the fact that we ignore warnings comes from something um much more general and deeper which is what i call the optimism bias which is a tendency to believe that the future will be better than the present and the past and we tend to think um that we're less likely to encounter positive um, less likely to encounter negative events in the future than we actually are, like divorce or being in a car accident, and more likely to encounter positive events, like having a really gifted kid or being successfully professional. And although, you know, this optimism bias can have negative consequences – like not taking precautionary action um, or it is, for example, related to uh, financial uh, bubbles because people tend to think that the market will go up and up and kind of ignore um, all the evidence against it. So there are these negative consequences, but there's so many positive consequences because what has been shown again and again is that optimistic people, even if this optimism is not necessarily realistic, they do actually tend to be healthier. Because if you think that good things are going to happen, it reduces your stress. Um, And that's good for your health. It also acts as a motivator. It motivates us to go out and try things, to put effort into things, um, to explore. Um, And it's been shown that optimists do, indeed, actually, at the end of the day, um, they are more successful than people who are pessimists. So there are these positive aspects to the optimism bias um but there's also the negative consequences and especially when it comes to ignoring warnings i think that's where it can actually mostly be negative Mm
0: -hmm. well so so what are some what are some ways that you've teased out this bias in the lab and in your own research
1: um so what we were in, really interested in when we encountered um, the evidence for an optimism bias was how do people maintain this optimism bias? Because we get negative and positive feedback all the time. Um, we go through positive experience in our lives and we go for negative experience in our lives. And so how is it possible that we maintain this kind of unrealistic view? And our hypothesis was that we tend to change our beliefs more. When we hear good news and less when we hear bad news and that's exactly what we showed in the lab so we ask people to estimate their likelihood of experiencing all sorts of negative events for example what is the likelihood that you will be robbed in your lifetime and then we give people information about the average likelihood for someone like them living in their city about their age of experiencing these events And what we're interested in is whether people take the information that we give them to change their beliefs. And what we find is that people do change their beliefs, but they change their beliefs much more when they get good information. So for example, if I tell you, actually, you're less likely to get robbed than you think. You know, maybe you think it's 40%, but actually the statistics for your city is only 30%. So then people change their beliefs really quickly. And they say, oh, well, maybe, you know, maybe I was wrong. It's 30% or so for me. But when I give you negative information, when I tell you, actually, for someone living in your city, you know, in your neighborhood, it's worse. It's about 50 percent you tend to say ah, I don't think you know it's really that high for me And so people learn more from positive information than negative information and looking in the brain using um, an imaging scanner, that looks at the activity in your brain while you do these kind of tasks we were able to see that parts of the brain especially parts in the frontal lobe so that's kind of the front of your brain we found that um that those regions they encode positive information really well so anytime you get information that's surprising but good the regions in the brain signal it. They say, "Oh well, there's something something new here um, that I should take notice of." But when the information is bad, they don't code for that information as well. And as a result, you don't change your belief as as much, and you end up with this kind of optimistic view.
0: Now, so you, you've you've looked at this neurologically. Uh, it does. Does it seem like there's a a biological evolutionary underpinning to this sort of thinking? Is this something that's Or is it something that's learned or cultural? I mean, does it seem purely biological to to you?
1: Um, Well, we can see these type of biases in animals as well. So you can see it um, in actually different animals, including birds um, and rats. And there's a new study showing that maybe it's even in horses. Um, The way that you do these experiments, um, obviously it's a little bit difficult, right? Because you can't ask a bird, you know, do you expect to be robbed? And you can't ask a horse, do you expect to get divorced? But um, what the scientists do is um, they teach the animal, That when they see a certain stimuli, let's say anytime you see a red light, they teach the animal that they have to press a right lever. And if they get that, if they do that, they get a large reward, like lots of food. If they see another stimuli, let's say a green light, they have to press a left lever. And if they do that, they don't get um, as much of a reward. Or they get a reward, but just after a delay. So it's not very good. I'll give you food, but you'll have to wait a while for it. Then they... um, Give them um, a light that's somewhere between the red and the green, somewhere in the middle and they, they wait to see what the animal does. Does the animal interpret this as a good thing? Does it press the left lever, suggesting that it thinks it's going to get a large reward? Or does it press the right lever, suggesting that it thinks um, it's getting the reward that's smaller or delayed in time? And what you see is that the animals tend to press the lever that suggests that they think a big reward is in their future. And even if the light um, is kind of towards even the green more towards like, the bad light, they still will continue to press the lever, suggesting that they think it's going to be a bigger reward. And it's not good for them, because if they get it wrong, they get nothing at all. So they use these type of experiments to show that you can see um, similar biases, positive biases in animals. And we know that the optimism bias exists in different cultures. You can see it in the Western world, and you can see it in the non-Western world. You can even see it in kids. So I do think it's something that we are born with, Mm -hmm. Um, most of us. So what people see again and again is that about 80% of the population have an optimism bias. That means that about 20% do not have an optimism bias. Out of the people who don't have an optimism bias, um, quite a few of them um, tend to have depression, either mild depression, which is related to more balanced views, or um, a pessimistic bias, which is related to severe depression.
0: And are, are do you are you, one of those, are you a scientist who is uh, on board with the idea of depressive realism?
1: Um, absolutely. So I think the, the people who suggested depressive realism is not correct. Well, I think there's two issues here. So one is people who are depressed and are severely depressed, they have a pessimistic bias, so they don't have realism. So I think if if that mm-hmm. is the issue, then it's correct. It's only the people with mild depression that have more of a balanced uh, view and the people with severe depression or even, you know, a, a clinical depression that's not mild, they tend to have a pessimistic bias. So that's not realism. Um, but I think the other issue is um, whether people are with depression are more realistic or they simply don't have a bias it's not the same thing oh yeah. Um, let me explain so you can have a you can, i mean when you're predicting the future for example we don't know what's going to happen so we're going to be mistaken a lot right you know i'm going to i think i'm going to get a great, really high salary in 2 years but i don't i think i'm going to uh, ruin my car but i don't so there's a lot of predictions that i make and i sometimes i'm right and sometimes i'm wrong so it's not that dep- the people with depression are more accurate, but rather that the errors that they make are not systematically biased. Mm -hmm. So sometimes they can make errors which are towards a good side and sometimes towards a bad side. overall, you know, it's it's not systematically biased in one direction.
0: Now, that is... um... So that's a really fascinating idea, and uh, <laughs> because you know, I think that there is a sense, you know, there's like this philosophical notion that the 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 more accurate we are, the more realistic we are, the the less biased we are, you know, the more perfect or pure or something like that. Yeah. And it's your work seems to suggest that there's um, that this is biological, and uh, and if we're sort of skewed in that way, and most of us are. That it must be there must be some sort of adaptive function here. Is what's your speculation as to what the uh, what the adaptive function of having this optimism bias would be?
1: I absolutely think that it is adaptive, and as I said, although it can have both positive and negative consequences, the fact that we see it in such a large um, part of the population, the fact that we see it in animals, non-human animals, the fact that we see it all over the world, suggests that on balance, the positive aspects are greater than the negative. And the most obvious one is that studies show again and again and again that optimists tend to be healthier and live longer. And so in an evolutionary sense, that's that wins, right? Um, mm-hmm. If if there's something that will make you live longer, that means you're more likely to have children, Um, and that specific trait is just going to be a trait that you will see in, in most of the population, and I think that's probably the main reason. But it's also important to remember that optimism is also related to things like exploration. So I think it's it was an important trait for humans to have in order to develop. Right? If you think about our ancestors uh, coming out of Africa trying to uh, explore the rest of the world, they wouldn't try to explore the rest of the world if they didn't think there was something good for them to find there. You, know, kind of, you don't go out of your cave unless you think there's something um, for you to, to, to find. Um, And there's a lot of different theories. I mean, I don't really, well, I mean, I was going to say I don't look at the adaptive function. That's, I guess, wrong. So the one thing that we have looked at is this idea that, well, it is possible that being unrealistically optimism is adaptive in normal circumstances, so in environments that are relatively safe, because, as I said, it enhances exploration and so on. But you, can, you may say, well, maybe it's actually not good for you if you are living in a dangerous environment where there's a lot of threats. And if you don't learn from negative information, you can get into real trouble. You really want to use caution. And so we thought, well, maybe the bias is something that fluctuates if you're in a safe environment, you have it. But if you are find yourself in somewhat of a threatening environment, you might you might lose it. And that's actually what we've been able to show in the lab that if you put people in situations of fret, if you stress them out with possible negative things, um, and you really show that they're really stressed, you measure you know you measure your, their cortisol levels, you, you measure them physiologically, and they're really stressed out. We find that the bias disappears they are suddenly able to Mm. learn from positive and negative information to the same extent.
0: So do you think it may be in in our modern, uh, safer, more um, abundant and affluent uh, lives that there would be sort of an uptick in this bias?
1: Um, Yeah, I think that on a normal day-to-day for most people, we have this bias. And when we find ourselves in high-stress situations, Um, that's when the bias disappears. And that makes a lot of sense if you think about the people who have it less, right? So take depression, for example. Depression is usually triggered by a very stressful life event. And depression is also characterized by having a high level of stress, even if the event is not that stressful. So so people who have depression, even things that, you know, to to healthy individuals do not seem very stressful, they can get um, a, a stress reaction, to that Mm -hmm. another thing that it can explain maybe is how the optimism bias changes with age so what we find is that um, kids and teenagers have a large bias and this bias gets smaller and smaller and smaller um, up until middle age and then so the middle age you have a bias but it's quite small and then it starts becoming bigger again as you grow older towards older age it actually becomes bigger and it's interesting because you, if you look at how stressed people are, you find the same the same thing. So people are most stressed in their middle age, and I guess you know that makes sense. That's when we have so many different obligations, you know, child rearing and, and professional obligations, and maybe taking care of elderly parents. Um, so I think maybe stress can also explain how the bias changes as you grow older.
0: Mm-hmm. That is so amazing, and um, and, and a lot of this is uh, pointing toward another another um, another another aspect of this that you point out in the book, um, and we've talked about this before, and this is something that uh, that um I think maybe is slowly, um, making its way into the public's understanding of the mind, but that you know memories are very inaccurate, and they're often very self serving, and um, they're they're more reconstructions than, than they are replays. And uh, you write in the book that maybe our ability to recollect the past at all is actually kind of, part of one part of a larger forecasting system that um, you say that imagining the future might actually be the primary function of this overall system. Could you help us understand that?
1: Yeah. So we know of, of certain parts of the brain that are important for memory. One part is called the hippocampus. Um, and it was thought for a long time that the hippocampus and, and the regions surrounding the hippocampus Their function was basically from memory. And then people started looking at what people do when they imagine the future. And it turns out that these same regions, the hippocampus and the surrounding regions of the hippocampus, um, are highly active when you imagine the future. And that makes sense, because to imagine the future, you need to take bits and pieces of information of things that happened to you in the past, and you put them together to create something new that has not happened yet. So it makes sense that you would use the same system. Um, But it is possible that this system was actually generated not for memory, but for the ability to predicting what is going to happen, because really... We need to be able to have some kind of prediction of what what is about to happen so that we can prepare. Um, And it is possible that um, this system was developed for that. Now, because we're using the same system to imagine something new, so to construct something that hasn't happened before, and we're using the same system to remember the past, it makes sense that when we remember the past, it's not a video play of what happened. When we remember the past, we too take bits and pieces of information from the past and then kind of put them together so that they make sense. Right. Mm-hmm. So we kind of tell a story of what happened and obviously it didn't happen exactly the same way. That's why different people have different recollection of the same event.
0: And so I mean it's like it's the exact it's the exact, it's same thing. It's like um it's like if I'm imagining what if – if I've just seen a trailer for a movie that I, that I want to see, um, it's like uh, – and I start to imagine what it's going to be like. I take bits and pieces of that trailer and I sort of string them together and I make the movie that I think it's going to be in my mind. And that's really kind of no different than taking bits and pieces of experiences and reconstructing what I imagine a past experience was like. It's, it's, so it's almost like it's exact same thing. Yeah
1: similar so you use the similar processes but you know there are differences because the past is much more constrained there's much more you know uh, evidence for you to use the the future is unconstrained so you can kind of do whatever you want in your mind Mm. when you think about the future so it's not exactly the same but it uses the same processes um to different magnitudes Mm
0: -hmm. and that gives us the opportunity to imagine really awesome nice beautiful futures and we we tend to do that
1: yes yes that's that's exactly the thing i mean when you look at the past yes there's some biases so people look at this in the past and and um especially in an older age actually it's been shown they tend to kind of look at it nostalgically and remember the the good bits of it but mostly um when we look at the past we don't have a systematic bias as much. I mean, we remember the negative and we remember the positive. But when we look at the future, well, nothing's happened. And and theoretically, anything can actually happen. So we use that to construct the future that we want. Um, And even when we look in the past and we think about negative events, you know, so a relationship that didn't work out or a job that didn't work out, what we think to ourselves, well, we've learned from that, Right. And so next okay. time the relationship will work out. Next time the job will work out because I remember these negative events and I'm going to use them to do better.
0: And so, like, um, I know you say in the book, and this is one of the things that really um, boggled my mind, was that um, other primates don't do it the way we do it, it That um, that – uh, monkeys and some and some apes—they don't prepare for the future the way we prepare. They they just sort of toss their food aside if there's extra food. What what is your thinking about why why that would be? Because it seems um, you would think that primates would uh, have sort of a, a a propensity for planning for the future.
1: Um, yeah, that that is really surprising. I have to admit, um, I I always wonder whether they really are un able to do that or we're just not conducting the right experiments. Hmm. Um, so people have a really hard time showing that primates um, can prepare for the future and plan for the future. Um, especially definitely if you're looking at the long long term. And I mean maybe that makes sense because we live longer than they do but you know they do live um, quite long as well. So it is really surprising that it's more, more about the moment um, then about the future, there's uh, one kind of psychological, or I would say philosophical idea. So I'll put it out there um, as just, you know, a philosophical idea that's interesting to think about. So this is a theory by um, Ajit Varki, who wrote Denial, and he's a professor at University of San Diego. And so his suggestion was that once humans... Um, had the ability to prospect, to look into the future, they also became aware of the negative things that are going to happen, which is, you know, illness and death. Um, And according to his theory, if if that was it, if we could imagine the future and we could just see, you know, illness and death and all the, the negative things that are going to happen, that would be a barrier for our evolution because it will generate fear and anguish that will actually stop us from doing all the things that we need to survive. And he said the reason that it didn't, that it wasn't a barrier for the evolution um, of, of humans was that at the same time, we also had an optimism bias. He's not saying that one causes the other. He's just saying, well, at the same time, we had this optimism bias, what he kind of calls the ability to deny. Um, And it was only because we had an optimism bias that we could also have perspection at the same time. Because now we can prospect into the future and we can see all these negative events. But our optimism bias still allows us to see kind of an unrealistic uh, pink view of what is about to come. And he suggests that no other animal um, can do quite that. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, it's not causation. It's like we happen to have one and the other, and that's why one allows the other.
0: And now we take a break from our program for a word from our sponsors. Picnics and potlucks and dinner parties and barbecues, that is what summer is all about. Good food is essential to having a successful summer. And now it's easier than ever to create delicious summer meals with Blue Apron. Because for less than $10 a meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients right to your door. Now, Blue Apron is completely flexible, so you can customize your recipes each week. You can be a meat eater for a month. You can be a vegan for the next month. You can choose a delivery option that fits your needs. And Blue Apron's Freshness Guarantee promises that every ingredient arrives ready to cook or they will make it right. Some meals available in July include seared chicken and creamy pasta salad with summer squash and sweet peppers, Mm! creamy shrimp rolls with quick pickles and sweet potato wedges, fresh basil fettuccine pasta with sweet corn and cubanelle pepper and chili butter steaks with parmesan, potatoes, and spinach. If those were on a menu, I would not be able to pick between them. I would just have to throw a dart at the menu against the wall. Look, you have to check this out. It's always so fun to get a box of Blue Apron stuff, crack it open, and go, oh, look at here. This is something I've never even seen before. And then you make it in your own kitchen. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping, by going to blueapron.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. Blue Apron. A better way to cook. Okay, I want to tell you about something that really is... One of my favorite things in the world it's called The Great Courses. The Great Courses is a big part of our household. We watch them all the time. We often choose The Great Courses over Netflix or Hulu or YouTube. It's just so great. I love being able to learn about anything that interests me whenever I want and with The Great Courses Plus I can do that. I can spend hours watching these fascinating video lectures learning from award-winning experts about topics that interest me like Logic, psychology, photography, playing chess. I say this all the time, but I really enjoyed one about visualizing mathematics. It just it just changed the way I think forever. And there are more than 8,000 different lectures that will change the way that you think forever because there is always something new to explore. Now, recently, I enjoyed watching The Intelligent Brain. It's a fascinating look into the research behind intelligence. It's all about the validity of IQ testing, what we've learned about the brain through imaging technology and and the latest research into intelligence and and primate brains. I want you to start watching The Great Courses Plus, just like us. They're giving my listeners a fantastic limited-time offer. It's it's about the best thing you could ever get. Listen to this. You get one month for free, and you get 50% off your next three months. You... You have to do this. It's the best thing ever. This generous offer extends your unlimited access for several months as you enjoy their huge library of engaging video lectures. But get this, you must sign up through my URL in the next few weeks. It's thegreatcoursesplus.com smart. You have to get on this right now if you want a free month and 50% off your next three. Remember, that special offer is, just for a limited time, at thegreatcoursesplus.com dot com slash smart that's the great courses plus slash smart and now we return to our program now you've been pretty adamant in public and um that you don't really believe it sort of goes against some of the uh some of the recent conventional wisdom that you don't believe that the key to happiness is actually low expectations. What is your take?
1: Hmm. Um, well, I mean, there's, there's different elements to it, but one is we do know that anticipating good things brings us happiness. Um, I mean, it's been shown so many times that uh, we've just done an experiment, a study where we ask people to imagine all sorts of events that can happen in the near future and tell us how happy those events make them feel. And um, number two on the list was planning for a vacation. Being on a vacation, being on, on the beach was about number 15. So people like planning for, for the future because planning for a vacation just makes you happy because in your mind, everything is going so well, right? You're going to be in the beach. It's going to be nice and warm and, you know, all the fun things that you're going to do. Well, once you're on vacation, there's also negative things that happen, you know, delays in the plane and maybe the kids are around and they're shouting, Um and it actually has been shown. So there's been a study uh, done by uh, Michael Norton and others uh, show asking people using their their phone to say how happy they are the week coming up to the holiday, the holiday, and then a week after. And he shows that the day that people are happiest is the day before the vacation. So that's when anticipation is highest. So and I, one journalist uh, told me happiness is waiting in the room in the waiting room for happiness. Uh, and I think that's very true. So I think a lot of of our well being is what we anticipate is going to happen.
0: So that's that's so great. We um on the show we had Elizabeth Dunn on the show um f- several months back, and she she researches happiness, and and she very much uh, she spent a lot of time saying that uh, she really believes in uh, in trying to give yourself lots of, of things to anticipate in the future, a lot of things to look forward yeah. to in the future because it's such a rich uh, resource for overall well-being and happiness.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And if, if you think about depression again, um, depression is involves the inability to imagine the future.
0: Mm, People are just right.
1: unable to imagine the future anymore, and I think that's a huge cause for, for negative affect.
0: Now, before we go... Um, I mean, what are I mean? This is the a really um, this is a really great this is a rich vein to mine in um, in psychology and neuroscience. It seems like there are many applications for this research. What are some ways that um, you've seen, or some ways that you can suggest that we can use the knowledge we're gaining about optimism bias and other positive biases to uh, improve our world, to improve our institutions, and our own lives, and so on?
1: Mm-hmm. I think there's uh, basically two. Uh, important kind of parts of, of what we can do with this one is how do we communicate warnings? And how do we communicate risks to other people? So given that now we know that most people have an optimism bias, and most people, their instinct is to rationalize and ignore if you tell them about negative things that may happen in the future, we might want to think and how to kind of reframe those messages um, to make them more about the positive stuff that can happen in the future, not the negative. Let me give you an example. So instead of saying, you know, smoking kills you, maybe you can say if you don't smoke, you will be better at sports. Or if you don't smoke, you will have better skin, right? Mm. Same thing with like uh, putting sunscreen. Instead of saying if you don't put sunscreen, you'll get cancer. Say if you do put sunscreen, um, you will be healthier. Um, So I think if we highlight the progress and not the decline, people may listen more. And at the end of the day, I mean, it's not that we're lying. Anytime we warn someone, the reason that we're warning them is because we want things to be better, right? We think that a positive outcome is possible, and we're just saying, ooh, you know, if you go like that, it'll be bad. Really what we mean is if you go this way, it will be good. And I think that's what we need to do. Our instinct is always to say, ooh, it's going to be bad. Um, but we need to kind of think for a second and try and say and see if we can reframe it in a way that highlights possible positive events in the future.
0: That's great. So imagine imagine how you're going to be better for what you're doing, not tr- not scare yourself into, uh, if you do this, bad things will happen. The alternative will make bad things happen. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And I think the second thing is... Um, Planning for, you know, looking at the negative aspects of of the optimism bias, which is, for example, we tend to think that things are going to take us uh, less time than they do. So if it's like any kind of project, a project in work, renovation, whatever, usually we think it's going to take us less time than it does. And we think it's going to cost less. Um, and also in financial markets, you know, an optimism bias can be a problem. So I think in, in those situations and similar situations, we need to come up with plans um, to protect ourselves. And uh, I give the example of, of the British government and how they planned for the 2012 Olympics, where they say, and they use these words, they say there is an optimism bias. And because of the optimism bias, they adjusted the um, the budget for the 2012 Olympics and the plan um, to adjust for the optimism bias. So, you know, added the extra money on top of what they thought um, it will cost. Added a few more months on top of what they thought it will take.
0: So just build, build it in, you know, I think that um, I... I uh, Building contractors often do that sort of thing they've learned to add uh you know twenty or thirty percent onto the price just in case and it seems like uh to to they sort of naturally stumbled upon this thing they needed to uh prepare the fa- for the fact that they may have uh they may be having some sort of rosy uh vision about the future-
1: mm-hmm. yeah and still usually it's under what it ends up being <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well um look I could talk to you about this forever and I thank you so much. The book is so cool, it's so great, and I encourage everyone to uh get the book and watch some of your um, some of your lectures online. They're all so fantastic. And if somebody wants to um to keep up with what you're doing to sort of follow you, you around on the Internet? How could they do that?
1: Um, so we have a, my lab has a website. I have to say I'm not, I'm not great with social media, so I don't actually have a Twitter account. Um, but all, our, all my articles um, are on two websites. One is my lab website at UCL, which is um, effectivebrain.com, and the other one is um, a website for my book, uh, which is theoptimismbias.com.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It's so uh, it was so great talking with you. Okay.
1: Thank you so much. <laughs>
0: That is it for this episode of the You're Not So Smart Podcast. For more great podcasts like this one, go to boingboingpodcasts.com. For previous episodes of this show, go to Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, boingboing, boing, or You're show notes, all right, you are not so, are at you are not so If you would like to support this show, please go to Patreon. Patreon.com slash you are not so smart chip in. One day we're going to have a reporter and it's going to be great. And you are going to be the people who made that happen. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. You can follow us on Twitter at NotSmartBlog. I am at David McCraney and you can find nuggets of fun things over on Facebook at Facebook.com slash you are not so smart. New stuff on the way. I promise I'm on the road doing speeches at the moment. So I am uh, juggling new stuff on the way soon. I promise, promise, promise. A new survey from one of the nation's largest healthcare systems, Dignity Health, reveals more than 75% of Americans believe individual mindfulness can benefit their community. 96% know someone in their lives who would benefit from being more mindful or more present. Taking just two minutes a day to be more present in your daily life not only benefits you, but also those around you. So set aside two minutes every day to be mindful and reflect on relationships and the purpose behind your work and daily activities. Share how you're making this a daily habit on social media with the hashtag Take Two Minutes. That's hashtag take the number two M-I-N-S. Visit dignityhealth.org slash take two minutes for more mindfulness tips.